Good morning. My name is Chad Donahoe. I'm the interim pastor here at Grace, and we are concluding our third week, uh, a three-week series on Jesus as our prophet, priest, and king. And so on this Easter morning, we'll take the last theme of Jesus as our king, our faithful and true king. And so with that, if you would please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17 will be in verses 14 through 20 this morning. And as you're turning there, I will pray, and I'll, as my habit, I will take one of Paul's prayers and we will make it our own. So this prayer from Ephesians chapter 1. Let's pray. This morning we acknowledge you as the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. We pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of you, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of our glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe, according to the working of your great might, that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead, seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You put all things under his feet, gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests, And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And together the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So some of you may be from out of town, visiting family, and you're here this morning. Some of you may be local, may be Laurentians, and you are visiting us this morning. So glad you are here. What I want to do is um, bring us up to speed a little bit on the sermon series, Prophet, Priest, and King, because the last two weeks we've taken up Prophet and Priest, this morning King. So again, I'll give you the quote that I've, uh, that I've quoted last couple of Sundays. 
The more you understand the Old Testament, the closer you come to the heart of Jesus in his understanding of his own identity and mission. So to understand Jesus, his heart, his identity, his mission, we have to grow in our understanding of the Old Testament and specifically the roles, the offices of prophet, priest, and king and how Jesus fulfilled those Old Testament roles. So to summarize what it means that Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king, I want to rely on the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And I want to do this for a couple of reasons. One is many of us and our kids have been raised in this, so it'll be good to review. It is the standard for our church. Westminster Confession of Faith is a summary of biblical doctrine. Really good, good summary of what the scriptures teach. And the other reason is next week I will head out to Colorado uh, and I will be examined by the presbytery there for the PCA church that I'm attending. So presbytery is a bunch of pastors and elders that will ask me a bunch of questions. And, um, and here's my goal. My goal is to not be deemed a heretic. That's the goal because that for a pastor is a bad day. I do have a backup plan, though. I was thinking about this. My wife doesn't know this. I think I'd just be a farmer after that, just, or a musician. Uh, anyway, uh, the goal is to not be, uh, be a heretic. And so here's what I've been, lately I've had, I've carried this around me. It's the pocket version of the catechism with scripture proofs, right? So the goal is for me, any spare moment I have, to memorize this, because a lot of the questions would come from this. And so, um, I'm going to quiz you this morning. So the first one is, what offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? It's an easy one. It's a sermon series. Prophet, priest, and king. All right, let's keep going. Let's see how you would answer these and avoid the charge of heretic. Next one is, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Again, prophets of the Old Testament, the mouthpiece of God. What did Jesus do? He fulfilled this office by revealing by himself, by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. That's what Christ did. If we want to know who God is, we look at Christ. Christ perfectly revealed God, perfectly taught the truth of God. In the way of salvation. The next question would be, how does Jesus uh, execute the office of priest? The answer would be, see if I have this memorized, as I look at my cheat sheet, in his, I have, I have three days to get this done, in his once offering, in his once offering of himself as a sacrifice for sin, and to reconcile us to God, and to continue to make intercession for us. And that was last week we talked about this. Through, the, through his death on the cross, Jesus atoned. He dealt with our sin by way of his blood. He was the substitute. Christ was judged, punished in our place. He willingly did this to reconcile us. And where is Jesus now? Seated at the right hand of the Father. The scriptures say interceding for us, defending us praying for us. Okay, the last question, how does Christ execute the office of a king? The answer is by subduing us to himself, by ruling 
and defending us and by restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And this is our topic for this morning, what we want to explore. But to be clear, these, uh, these are not just answers uh, to a test. This is glorious truth. Jesus as our prophet, priest, and king, revealing the way of salvation. There is, though, another version of God in our culture and um, called, referred to as moralistic, therapeutic deism. I actually mentioned this in a sermon about 10 years ago, but it is a philosophy, a religion, so to speak, that, um, that has not gone away. It's incredibly prevalent and um, it goes something like this, that if there is a God, he or she, and it comes down to moralistic, therapeutic deism, moralistic, um, he or she just desi- you know, wants us to be good and that good people go to heaven. And then therapeutic is this idea that um, God just wants us to be happy, so do whatever makes you happy. And the deism is that God is distant, not necessarily directly involved in the daily affairs of our lives, but maybe we'll be there for the major issues of our life, right? It's prevalent in our day, incredibly sad, because we have a different message to proclaim, and the message is Jesus as our prophet, priest, and king. And how does that play with moralistic therapeutic deism in this way? um, Moralistic therapeutic deism, the problem is Christians can fall into this way of thinking, but it is not biblical and it is not good news. And here's the good news. Jesus came as the prophet and what he revealed, the true prophet revealing that no matter how good we do, we can never do it good enough to earn God's favor, to merit eternal life because we have sinned against a holy God. And because that, the requirement is justice and punishment against sin. But what did Jesus do? He himself became our priest, sacrificed himself. So Jesus atoned for our sin, and he didn't, he did not do it through his happiness. Therapeutic is just God desires you to be happy. Jesus didn't do it through happiness. He did it through holiness, right? It was a transfer. It was a substitute. Our sin placed on him, if we trust him. His holiness placed on us. So the question is, well, does God want us to be happy? Absolutely. But true, eternal happiness can only come through holiness. And then finally, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the role of king, Not a distant, deistic God who's not involved in our lives, but a personal king who governs us, who guides us, who protects us, guards us. So, um, the problem, like for instance with my pocket catechism, the problem with this is too often it stays in my pocket. I forget about it. I neglect it. I ignore it. 
And oftentimes in our own lives, as we get busy and we're out in the world, we forget the glorious truth of Christ, our prophet, priest, and king, and all that means for us. So this morning, I just want to take up this theme of Jesus as our one true king. And what does it mean that if he is the one true king, all allegiance belongs to him? So with that, I want to trace uh, this theme of king. So these, these offices, prophet, priest, and king. What was true about all these offices, they were set apart in the, in the Old Testament. They were ordained by God, anointed by the Holy Spirit but for the way of salvation. So I want to take a look at this theme of king, this office throughout the Old Testament. And so what we find as we open up the scriptures, Genesis 1 and 2, is we find this glorious, perfect world that God establishes by the word of his power, and he is king over creation. And we can think of the Garden of Eden as his temple. God the king, Eden is temple. What does he do? He creates Adam and Eve, right? And what was their role? Image bearers. They're made in God's likeness to represent God to the world, represent him in all their relationships, represent him in their responsibilities, And then um, God calls them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and have dominion. And this is a godly dominion, right? Godly dominion, caring for creation, caring for one another, representing God to the world. Genesis 3 happened, right? Sin entered the world. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God and essentially established their own kingdom, So the godly dominion, if we break it down to just love God and love others, uh, turned into godless domination, and we've seen it ever since. It's the world that we live in. Selfish domination over creation, over others. It's humans' sinful desire to play God, if I can say it this way, to play king over our lives, to build our own little kingdoms apart from the virtues of the true king. It's the sin of pride, seeking to put ourselves in God's place in our own lives, thinking we know best, at times just ignoring this blatantly because it's not convenient, because we don't think it'll make us happy, right? But there was hope, Genesis 3.15 Again, it's been said, uh, the, the rest of the Bible is just a footnote to Genesis 3.15, this promise, if I can say it this way, that a future king will come and crush the head of the serpent, of Satan, and make things right again. So let's, let's go from Genesis 3 and let's jump ahead to Genesis 11, because what we see is the sin of Adam and Eve, that sin of pride, of autonomy, We see it on a much larger scale in Genesis 11. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. The people of the earth come together to build a tower, and I quote from Genesis 11, with its top in the heavens where they don't belong. And let us make a name for ourselves, they say, rather than making a name for God. So again, seeking to establish and build their own kingdom. So what does God do? He crashes their tower and they all die, right? 
No, making sure you're still awake and also making the point that could have been justified, but what God extended instead is grace. God's grace. What he does, he confuses their language and he scatters them out all across the face of the earth. But then God focuses his narrow to one man, Abraham. And through that man, this promise of blessing that he will become a great nation, that he'll be a blessing to the nations, but also this promise that kings will come from him, Genesis chapter 17. And also later in Genesis 49, there's this promise that a ruler, a king, will be raised up from the tribe of Judah. Now, Judah, that was the tribe of Jesus, by the way, right? And the promise is the king's staff will not depart from him. He will be an eternal king. So what we see in Genesis is we see God king over creation, but then we see creation fallen because of sin, but this promise that God will send a king to undo the sin and brokenness of the world. Now, we jump to Deuteronomy, our passage this morning. And the book of Deuteronomy, if I could summarize it this way, is God is, or Moses is pointing back to God's faithfulness throughout history. But then Moses is also pointing to the future, and specifically with this idea of kings. Now, you're, if you're in your Bible, your heading may uh, have something similar to, uh, in this section, uh, laws concerning Israel's kings, because we find some uh, one do, but three don'ts in this passage. And here's the principle behind this passage. God loves his people and he wants them cared for by the right king. Okay, that's really important. So, and we'll see this played out over and over in history. So, God, through Moses, is telling his people in this passage, when you come to the promised land, you're going to want a king. In fact, in verse 14, Moses tells them what they'll say. I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. Moses says, you may do that, but it's got to be a king of God's choosing, and one from among your, among your brothers, you know, like, say, the tribe of Judah, right? So, here's some don'ts. It can't be a king whose heart is set on acquiring many horses. Why? Well, actually, a couple reasons. One is if they're going to acquire horses, likely they will go to Egypt. They are not to ever return to Egypt because they were enslaved in Egypt. God has commanded them not to do that. And further, they actually don't need a lot of horses, like for an army, because God is their king, and he has promised that he will go before them and protect them and fight their battles for them. So they actually don't, do not need a large army with God as their king. So that's one of them. The other one is, uh, the king is not to marry uh, many wives. And this has in view a couple things. One would be the sinful tendency to marry multiple women. The other one is the reality that um, oftentimes the practice would be marrying foreign women for political reasons, but the foreign women would serve other false gods, potentially turn the king's heart away. So the last one would be excessive uh, silver and gold uh, because the king's treasure will then be on earth, not on God. So here's the one do. 
what he's supposed to do. He should have a copy of the law. Look at verses 18. And, and by way of the law, likely that could be the book of Deuteronomy is what that could be referring to. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him. He shall read it in all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law in these statutes, doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." In other words, you govern yourself by the law, you and your people are going to be blessed. It's, uh, it's that simple. So let's fast forward. Uh, how does this all play out? I'm going to attempt to make a fairly long story, like most of the Old Testament. Uh, I'll try to go quick through this. Recall Deuteronomy 17, 14. When you come to the land your Lord has given you and you possess it, Okay, this is referring to the promised land, and what we see right after the book of Deuteronomy, the next two books are Joshua and Judges, and we see them entering through these books into the promised land. Things are going well throughout the book of Joshua. Things begin to fall apart uh, in the book of Judges, especially we know that when Joshua and his generation died, then they, uh, Israel began to decline morally, for, for instance, in... Um, Judges chapter 2, verse 10, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or work that he had done for Israel. So that's a bad sign for the book of Judges, and it gets worse to where in the end, the very last statement in the book of Judges is, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No king in Israel. So the answer God's people desire is they need a king. And unfortunately, they're thinking we need a king like the other nations need a king, and that will be our hope. So what we find is moving forward, and these are the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and Chronicles. Israel chooses its first king, and they choose Saul, King Saul. Now, it was said that Saul was um, tall and handsome. I mean, what else? What more do you want in a king, right? Uh, how about righteousness? And that's what he lacked. Um, what God desired was a king who could lead his people to be faithful to the covenant and be a light for the nations. Saul was not that king. In fact, uh, the commandment of Deuteronomy was the king had to keep the law, had to love the law. Saul did not, so he was rejected. Next king that comes along is actually, um, it's God's choice this time. There's a family of eight sons, and they're presented before the Lord. Some of them look really good, but God says to them, don't look at appearance, height, or stature, or stature. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So the youngest son, David, is chosen to be the next king. And David is described as a man after God's own heart. Not perfect by any means, but a man after God's own heart. And what we see in the scriptures in an incredibly, incredibly important passage in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 6, God establishes a covenant with David and there's a covenant promise that God will provide a king that will follow David, one of his descendants, 
that and God will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Great hope for the people of God. But then the next king is Solomon. And Solomon was wise, but if you recall the three don'ts from Deuteronomy 17, don't acquire many horses. First uh, Kings 10 and 11 will talk about these three don'ts. I'll just summarize them. Don't acquire many horses. Oh, Solomon did. Don't acquire much silver and gold. Oh, Solomon did. And the third one, don't acquire many foreign wives. And I quote, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, and his wives turned away his heart. Again, we see the moral decline in God's people. They've rejected God as their king. They're seeking to establish and build their own kingdom. And after Solomon, it falls apart even more. The kingdom divides north and south into Israel and Judah. God sends the prophets into them. Now, I did a 12-week series on the minor prophets, so I'm not going to return there. Except to say, what we find is that um, God's people fail over and over and over. But God does not give up, and his sovereign plan is unfolding. The office of king was established in the Old Testament, but it always pointed to the fulfillment in the New Testament, the fulfillment of this glorious king who would come, who would be wiser than Solomon, and it was said of David he was a man after God's own heart. But this ultimate king, perfectly a man after God's own heart. So we know this person... If, if you're wondering in the very beginning when I said I'll establish the theme and talk about the fulfillment of Jesus, so we're talking about Jesus. This is the fulfillment of Jesus. And the prophets give us great hope here. The prophets pointed forward to this king. We can think of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. I'll read this. Feel free to turn there. But you've got to be quick because I'm going. Isaiah 9, starting in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So if you notice right now, we're covering Christmas this morning and Easter, right? Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, right? These Old Testament prophets were looking forward, and then the New Testament opens up. Uh, Matthew's gospel opens up with this glorious announcement of a king who was born in Bethlehem, Right, we see this in Matthew 2. The wise men from the east come to Jerusalem asking, where is, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star, and that we saw his star is a reference to a prophecy in Numbers chapter 24. So good. This is good news. But right after the announcement of this king, we read, when Herod the king heard this, by the way, Herod the king he was appointed the king. Rome appointed Herod the king over uh, the Jews. 
Herod wasn't a good king. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. You feel the tension mounting, and indeed, opposition to this king will continue to increase throughout the scriptures. We find the tension as the gospels go on that the crowds are flocking to Jesus because of his healings, his miracles, and all the while, the religious leaders of the day, they are growing more and more threatened and want to destroy Jesus. On multiple occasions, Jesus told his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer at the hands of the religious rulers, be killed, and be raised on the third day. And that time came as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. This is what, as we think of the Passion Week, or Passion for Suffering, Passion Week, it began, it be, it began with Jesus riding in on this donkey, the triumphal entry. It was a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Key word there is humble. See, the crowds were shouting, Hosanna, meaning save now. Hosanna to the son of David. So they think, here he is, here's the king, here's the one. And they wanted Jesus to overthrow Rome. That was their big plan. But they misunderstood the point about Jesus riding in on a donkey, not a war horse. Jesus doesn't live up to their expectations of overthrowing Rome at this point. And so in a matter of days, this crowd will turn on him and shout, crucify him, crucify him. But make no mistake, This king did come to overthrow, but he has someone else in his sights. It's Genesis 3.15, to crush the head of the serpent of Satan. I mentioned um, earlier the pocket version, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, when it talks about the offices of prophet and priest. If you caught this, Jesus executes the office of prophet, priest, and king in his humiliation and exaltation. And this is important for us as to be able to see, if I could say it this way, if you're going to follow a king, maybe good to know his credentials. Is he worth following? Let's think about the humiliation and the exaltation of our king. So for humiliation, in fact, if I go through this, or to go through this, just you could think of Jesus' kingship in the sense of a big you, right? So it starts with the pre-incarnate Christ. He's in glory. But then incarnation takes on flesh. His earthly life of suffering ends with crucifixion. At least the humiliation ends. But then you see the exaltation, resurrection from the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father, seated at the right hand in glory, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. So with that, let's think about his incarnation. He left heavenly glory to take on flesh, to represent us, to rescue us. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a dirty, smelly stable with animals. And why did he do it? I'll get to that in a minute. 
Think about his earthly life. No material comforts, often hungry, sleep-deprived, constantly anguished and grieved over sin, rejected not just by the crowds but by his own family and his inner circle of disciples, his closest friends. He was constantly persecuted, constantly suffering. Why did he do it? I'll get to that in a minute. Think about his crucifixion. Jesus willingly submitted himself not to a king's crown but to a crown of thorns. And with that, the suffering that took place, and more than anything else, the fact that God had to separate from his son in the sense of his son, Jesus would have to take on the sins of his people, the agony of that. Why did Jesus do it? Um, Can't think of a, a better way to talk about the crucifixion than for the scriptures to speak to it, especially uh, Isaiah. I want to read Isaiah 53. And as I read this, I want us to keep in mind, um, you know, I talked about memorizing the shorter catechism. I'm going to guarantee Jesus had this memorized. Jesus knew that he was the fulfillment of this. So um, Jesus knew this was what was coming his way. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not seen, or that which they have not heard, they understand. Chapter 53, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like the sheep that's before his shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 
Jesus knew this section of Scripture, and he knew that it was all about him. Why did he do it? Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him, and what was that joy of securing the salvation of his people, of you and of me? Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Philippians talks about this humiliation and exaltation of Christ. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Pause. In the ancient world, crucifixion was the ultimate symbol of humiliation, of torture, of defeat. And so the cross seemed to be the humiliation of Jesus, period. But God's sovereign plan was unfolding. Philippians 2 continues. After the part about Jesus humbling himself on the cross, Philippians 2 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, heaven on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And how was Jesus exalted? Resurrection. The ascension then to the right hand of the Father, where he rules and reigns as the King of kings, Lord of lords, and with the promise that this king will return in judgment. There's this story uh, that I read in a book. It's the drama of Scripture. I'll just read it. An atheist, a committed disciple of the truth of communism, once gave a speech to an enormous crowd in the former Soviet Union. He mocked the Christian faith, saying it was all mere fantasy. It was not Jesus, but the program of Marx and Lenin that was destined to bring history to its appointed purpose. The atheist was eloquent and withering in a scorn for Christianity. When he finished, an Orthodox priest asked if he could say just two words in reply. The two Russian words are translated by three in English. The priest shouted, Christ is risen! And the crowd roared back in response, carried with them from their childhood. He is risen indeed. For a world so twisted by evil and enslaved by sin, what other message could there be? Christ is risen, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a new world is dawning. The night of evil is ended. The light of God will fill the whole earth again. The resurrection stands at the center of the Christian faith. If it is not true, we are fools. If it is true, and I believe it is, it is everything. It is everything. What is the significance of the resurrection, the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father? Um, on one hand, it's proof. Jesus claimed to be God, backed it up by the resurrection. Romans 1.4 talks about how he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, proving Proving he was God. How many people claim to be God, 
but then die and live again to talk about it. Jesus did. But not only that, God did not give up. God did not give up. Ever since Genesis 3, the question is, how will God ultimately deal with human rebellion and a fallen world? What will God do? The cross and resurrection is the answer, and it's the only hope for the world. At the cross, Jesus was our priest. He atoned for sin. At the resurrection, we see Jesus as the conquering king, conquered sin and death and Satan. He conquered sin. He conquered our sin if we're in Christ, past, present, and future. The Bible gives us some great images. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sin from us. Right? East and west aren't supposed to touch. Just keep going. Right? That's how they've been removed. Psalm 103. Uh, God has hurled our sins into the depths of the sea. Micah. And then finally, God takes our sins, places them behind his back to where he doesn't look upon them. Isaiah 38, because of Christ, he took our sins. Jesus conquered death. The grave could not hold Jesus down. Jesus rose from the grave. Not only that, the scriptures tell us, Romans 6, 4, that we, if we died in Christ, we died to sin. If we're in Christ, we rose again to a new life, which means we are no longer under the dominion of sin. It's a glorious truth. And then finally, uh, Jesus conquered Satan. Uh, Genesis 3.15, right? That promise that a king would come to crush the head of the serpent. The cross crushed Satan. And in Revelation chapter 12, we see the spiritual glimpse of this as Satan is referred to as the accuser and deceiver of the brethren, right? Seeks to deceive us and then accuse us of not being worthy. But at the cross, Jesus paid for our sins. Therefore, if Satan comes against us, any spiritual evil comes against us, Christ says, nope, they're mine. They are mine. I bought them with my blood. They're clean. We are protected. In a sense, it is um, our king going into war and we are behind his back and protected. I think about this, just a silly story. I I shared this actually a few years ago. I'll share it again because I couldn't think of one better. So um, a game I I used to love playing growing up with my kids, uh, I'd call it Protect the Princess because I have four kids, boy, boy, girl, boy. And so I would take uh, the princess, that would be Paige, and I would tell the boys, Peyton, Quentin, and Ty, um, we'd go down basement carpet with beanbags around, and I'd put her behind me, and I'd promise her that I will stop anything that comes after you, namely Peyton, Quentin, and Ty. I'd say, all right, boys, come and get her. And they'd be like, ah, coming after me. And I'd be taking them and throwing them. At times, if they'd get smart, they'd plot against me and they'd rush me at the same time. And I'd scoop them and knock them together and keep throwing them. Um, All the while, Paige yelling, destroy them, daddy, destroy them, daddy. And, uh, and oh, I did. I did. Um, 
But this is the image that we have. At times, Paige was still terrified. I had it under control. I knew I had it under control. They weren't touching her. They weren't touching my princess. But she was still frightened, crying out for help. And that's us, right? Silly illustration, but there's a truth. Jesus at the cross conquered Satan, sin, and death. Now, until Jesus returns again, is Satan still active? Is evil still active? Yes. But if I'm King Daddy, right, what about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, seated at the right hand of the Father on the throne, ruling and reigning, protecting, governing, allows things to happen, but we have a living hope. We have a living hope because he lives and he reigns at the right hand of the Father. So whatever you are carrying in here this morning, and I'm carrying some stuff too, and our promise, we have a living hope because of the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Jesus promised to be with his disciples to the ends of the earth. And he made good on that promise because with him seated at the right hand of the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit. He sent the Spirit of God. So we have the presence of Christ. We have the Holy Spirit guiding us into truth, convicting us of sin, right? Strengthening our faith. And there's a promise that Jesus at the right hand of the Father will return. And the promise is every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And until then, until he returns, what do we do? We realize that when we're seeking to build our own little kingdoms and ignoring this, that it's foolishness. Because we have a great king who seeks to govern us with wisdom and power. So with that, Jesus began a message when he entered the world, when he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he taught his disciples the way of the kingdom. Things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn their sin. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Blessed are you if you're persecuted for his sake. He taught his disciples to pray that God's kingdom would come. And then exhorted them to seek first the kingdom and then everything else would work out. Right? Everything, we're, all the burdens we're carrying, seek his kingdom. Everything else will work out. And as we wait, we worship. Knowing that he's seated on the throne, we worship and we, and we have a visual and a sense of how we're caught up in this and a sense of what the throne room is, is like as far as we can see it from our vantage point, from Revelation 4 and 5. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. By your will they existed and were created. 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seal, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And we will continue our worship in a minute with singing, but let me pray for us. Lord, we give you praise that you are worthy of all worship. You are worthy of our whole lives in allegiance to you. Thank you for your life for us. Thanks for your death for us. I praise you, the power of the resurrection, and that because that is true, because you're seated at the right hand of the Father, we have nothing to fear. We give you thanks that you are our exalted King. And Lord, you know our needs, and I think about some of the needs within our... So we pray for the needs in our congregation, for Ed and Peggy White's brother Keith. Um, cancer has spread from lungs to the lining of his brain. Lord, would you provide comfort, strength during this time that they would look to you in trust. Peggy, uh, this next Wednesday, will have open heart surgery to replace mitral valve pray for those surgeons, uh, for the care that you would govern over that, that you would heal her. Peggy asked that she'd be a testimony uh, and be a blessing. I pray that, uh, that Ed and Peggy would indeed be a blessing, that you would take care of her. For Tim and Cindy Jensen, their, their 18-year-old granddaughter, uh, ongoing cancer will begin a, a year-long trial study. Lord, I pray that you would work through that, that you would heal her, or whether you want to work apart from it, heal her, or that you would, but, um, but no matter what, that you would um, bless and draw them close to you. Pray for Vanessa, former member of Grace, living in Shanghai, um, lives with spina bifida, access to medication is difficult, and pray that she'd be able to receive medication as well as protection from COVID. And uh, she asked that the that your peace, which surpasses understanding, would be present. Lord, I love that. I pray that would be true of Vanessa, but also for us and all that we face, that the peace of Christ would reign over us because as a king, we know that you reign over us and that you are good. We pray all this in Jesus' name and amen.